Right now, a man named Alexander Zukov is sitting in jail for one of the most financially ruinous schemes ever invented for the internet. Zukov is guilty. He was caught and convicted under a mountain of evidence against him. Simple as that. Here's the thing. The overwhelming majority of people involved in his case, and the people who have written and spoken about it since, would have you believe that what you've just heard is the whole story. Bad guy, cybercrimes, jail. Except the deeper you look into it, the deeper the well goes. The picture widens, like those old Alfred Hitchcock close-ups. As we zoom in, what we're looking at strangely appears further away. Hi, I'm Ran Levy. Welcome to Cyber Reason's Malicious Life. In this episode, we'll learn how Alexander Zukov defrauded some of the biggest American corporations for millions of dollars. And we'll ask the question that hardly anyone else is willing to acknowledge. Was this clever, successful, guilty cyber criminal merely a fall guy for everybody else playing his twisted game? It was September 2015 when a group of researchers working for the cybersecurity firm WhiteOps noticed a quote-unquote small amount of automated web traffic all bearing the signature of the same bot. They started monitoring, just in case, thinking little of it. That is, quote, until October of the following year, when the bot morphed and began to scale and adapt aggressively, end quote. We at Malicious Life reached out to White Ops, now called Human, for an interview. They declined, as they were advised by the FBI, not to comment on an ongoing legal case. So we can only pull from what they've already published online, namely their initial white paper we're reading from now. Quote, In September 2016, White Ops detected a mutation in a previously low-volume bot signature, which had been flagged as C3 since September 2015. The security research team continued to track the evolution of C3 as it innovated and grew into what would become known as MethBot. End quote. MethBot, due to references to meth in the code. They'd later learn that meth derives from the name of the company behind the bot, Media Methane. Quote, on October 5, 2016, MethBot began to scale aggressively, reaching as many as 137 million impressions per day by the end of the week. The operation continued to expand rapidly. By the end of the month, the bot farm had spread to affect 32 distinct clients, upon which WideOps had detected or blocked activity. Following the initial ramp in October, MathBot continued to produce massive amounts of impression volumes while continuing to adapt its codebase daily in an effort to elude fraud detection and viewability vendors and avoid discovery in order to continue the operation. End quote. The researchers assessed that MathBot, quote, far exceeds the financial damages done by previously discovered botnets, end quote, causing, in their estimates, three to five million dollars worth of fraud per day. This was an overstatement, but even a small fraction of these numbers is a lot of money to be intercepting every day. How was it possible? In digital ad fraud, there's something called domain spoofing. That's Dr. Augustine Fu, 
for years, he's been trying to ring the alarm on the problem of digital advertising fraud. Ad fraud can manifest in a number of ways, including domain spoofing. Where a bad guy could just make a page appear to be uh, a mainstream publisher like New York Times or Wall Street Journal or MarthaStewart.com. And so in the data, it looks like the ads ran on those sites when the ads never actually ran on those sites. So imagine you're a company and you think you're advertising your product on the New York Times website, but you're just being tricked by bots. They thought they were paying for ads on their legitimate publishers when it was completely an ad that didn't run anywhere, actually. On the face of it, it seems like somebody could have figured this whole thing out pretty easily. But Media Methane maintained a massive, thorough operation to try to disguise their trail. They began by renting more than 2,000 servers from data centers in Dallas and Amsterdam. It's very inexpensive for the bot makers to just use those cloud data centers. In fact, uh, they don't even need to pay for the hardware because they just pay for what they use. So it's actually dramatically lowered the cost of entry for anybody to get into the bot making business. It was from these servers that they'd load real ads on fake sites, spoofing more than 6,000 domains in all. So it wouldn't be so obvious, right? Because if you just had traffic coming from one domain and too much of it, uh, it would be pretty obvious. Next, Media Methane leased somewhere between 570 and 853,000 IP addresses, assigning them to different servers. But ordinary people don't usually access the internet through cloud data centers, which would make tracking these IPs rather straightforward for anybody with the intent to look. Except... Here, the bots are bouncing the traffic through what we call residential proxy services. So there's a number of companies selling access to residential proxies, where the traffic can then be bounced through a residential IP address to make it look like it came from a residential IP versus a data center. So instead of a data center in Texas, these IPs would appear from the outside to belong to regular customers of Verizon, Comcast, or Spectrum. At this point, we have hundreds of thousands of fake computers accessing thousands of fake websites on thousands of real servers. Tracking any portion of this activity, let alone grouping it all together, would have been a massive task for any authorities or researchers. But the ruse went much deeper than this. As we've talked about plenty on this show, most recently in our episode last month, The Reason You Don't Have Data Privacy, companies amass a remarkable amount of information about you through your internet activity. Your cookies aren't soft and delicious. They're a treasure trove of data points indicating your browser history, recent purchases, demographic information, geolocation, and more. Advertisers pay good money for that micro-targeting data, and Media Methane knew that. So they forged internet personas, an army of ad-viewing ghosts from different places with different characteristics, and maintained them over time. Then, to further the illusion that real people were viewing the ads, Media Methane programmed their bots to simulate exactly how people might use the internet. Browsing websites, fake mouse movements, scrolling, clicks, starting and stopping video ads partway through, 
instead of letting them run all the way until completion every time. To give these scrawls and clicks context, the bots had their own fake logins for Facebook, Twitter or Google, as if they were logged in while doing all of this. And MathBot would mimic different operating systems, Windows, Mac, iOS and different browsers through which all of this activity was happening. So it would sometimes pretend to be Chrome, sometimes pretend to be Safari. And so again, by rotating through a large number of different browsers, it would make it less obvious that it's just generated by bot activity. Picture all of this, hundreds of millions of times over every day across more than 250,000 unique URLs. Of course, each of these fake publisher sites was no more than a page with a video ad spot, once you looked under the hood. Even with all these stealth tactics, probably, somebody along the line might have caught on to the scam. Except there's one crucial detail we've yet to mention. Media Methane's customers were not advertisers and publishers. Instead, they sold their traffic to a middleman. Ad tech companies that were basically bundling together inventory to sell. Exchanges, ubiquitous in online advertising, designed to programmatically facilitate the buying and selling of ad placements. You would probably call them resellers or SSPs or something, meaning supply-side platforms. So they would actually go out and help the, um, the buyers of the ads secure the ad inventory. Through programmatic exchanges, MethBot was able to launder its falsified traffic. So the problem is very similar to what we saw in the um, 2008 financial crisis. It was basically junk mortgages being bundled into good mortgages and kind of being sold as all of it was good, right? So it was AAA rated and all that kind of stuff. So in this case, you have some legitimate ad impressions, and then you have a whole bunch of fake ones being manufactured by bot traffic, and you just kind of bundle it all together. When you, know, when you mix it all together, it... it kind of gets easy to hide the fraud. They're coming for it. Your personal data, your intellectual property, your business. Cyber attackers are working to take what belongs to you and holding you to ransom. Defenders don't fear ransomware. They end it. With Cyber Reason, defenders detect and stop ransomware that even others miss every time. This is not just a product, it's a mission. Cyber Reason gives you the upper hand against ransomware and all other cyber attacks. At Cyber Reason, we don't fear ransomware. We end it. Learn more at cyberreason.com ransom. According to how the story of MethBot is typically told, this whole grand scheme was devised by one man. On the internet, he was known as Nostra, like Nostradamus. In real life, he was Alexander Zukov. Blonde hair, blue eyes, a soft look about him that portrays programmer much more than hardened Russian criminal. A native of St. Petersburg, Zukov served in the army before turning to cyber work around the turn of the millennium. A cybercrime colleague told the Russian newspaper Kommersant that Zukov was, quote, a merry fellow with a great sense of humor whom no one will say a bad word about, 
end quote. Zukov was also moral, at least by the standards of the community he occupied. Quote, he did not steal credit cards and did not traffic in child porn, his colleagues clarified. But his work was not always clean from the point of view of the law. End quote. Around 2010, Zukov got an apartment in Varna, an historic coastal city in East Bulgaria. According to Kommersant, quote, Nostra did not earn any big money, he lived quietly, and people even began to forget him a little. End quote. That is, until the fall of 2014, when he was contracted for a job. By the time security researchers caught on years later, Zukov was leading a small group of developers under the banner of Media Methane. According to the Department of Justice, their methbot was responsible for eating over $7 million in ad revenues from corporations that didn't have a clue what was going on. Zukov kept 75% of the proceeds for himself, pocketing $4.8 million. He laundered it through bank accounts in Bulgaria, Cyprus, the Czech Republic, Latvia, Russia, and the United Kingdom. From a modest apartment in Bulgaria to a multi-millionaire. Zukov gave himself a title he felt appropriate for his new stature. The King of Fraud. But this boastfulness, perhaps, contributed to his undoing. On November 6, 2018, Bulgarian authorities carried out a warrant on Zukov's head issued by the United States government. The 38-year-old was put in handcuffs, and because he wasn't in his home country of Russia, he was successfully extradited to the land of the free the following January. In May 2021, a jury in Brooklyn, New York, convicted Zukov on four accounts of wire fraud and money laundering. That November, he was ordered to pay $3.8 million and handed a prison sentence of 10 years. U.S. attorney Brian Peace provided a statement that summed up the mood. Quote, Sitting at his computer keyboard in Bulgaria and Russia, Zukov boldly devised and carried out an elaborate multi-million dollar fraud against the digital advertising industry and victimized thousands of companies across the United States. Today's sentence holds the defendant accountable for his deception and outright theft of more than $7 million and sends a powerful message to cybercriminals around the world that there's no escape from the international reach of law enforcement. End quote. Law enforcement, media outlets, and the security community heralded victory over the king of fraud. The Association of National Advertisers, the trade association, made a big deal out of it because it made for good headlines, right? We caught a Russian national doing hacking and crime and all that, and they took full advantage of it, issuing press releases essentially claiming credit by associating themselves with this uh, prosecution, right? So the trade associations amped up the PR around this and said, oh yeah, hey, look, we caught this Russian national for committing ad fraud. As if it even mattered. This was one of the most rudimentary bots uh, you, could, you could imagine. To Dr. Fu, the story of Alexander Zukov is, if anything, unexceptional. He was just one case, and the dollar amounts were extremely trivial, right, like $7 million. 
when we're talking about $150 billion being spent on digital advertising in the US alone, right? Not worldwide. So it was less than, you know, a drop in the bucket. If anything, the most notable thing about Zukov was that he got caught at all. And there's many that are much more sophisticated that are still in operation that have not been caught. Do you have any sense of approximately how much advertising traffic online is fake? The vast majority of it. Nobody has a view into the whole internet, but there are ways you can methodically test for fake traffic and fake ad impressions. So the way we estimate it is you take a look at the good publishers, uh, so the ones that you recognize, like New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, the Hearst, uh, you know, Condé Nast and Meredith companies, you know, they have all those consumer magazines and a bunch of newspapers, right? So those are the ones that humans have heard of and humans do visit, right? So those mainstream publishers have human audiences. Then when we talk about the hundreds of millions of sites that are what we call the long tail, right? People have never heard of them but yet they're generating hundreds of billions of impressions to buy, who's generating those impressions? There's no good way to capture the entirety of the problem, but enough researchers have tried to test exactly how much of the world's ad traffic is chum. Like in 2019, the security company Check analyzed 4.1 billion US ad impressions from 1.2 million websites, finding that around 18%, one-eighth of the traffic, was fraudulent. Their estimate fell to 14% in 2021. That figure is in line with a 2020 University of Baltimore study, which concluded that 14% of all pay-per-click ads online are invalid. Other studies have varied widely. In 2021, Statista published rates of ad fraud by region, 1.6% in Europe, the Middle East, and Africa, 1.5% in the US and Canada, 1.1% in Latin America, and 0.8% in Asia. By contrast, the same year, the UK software company Lunio claimed that 36% of clicks on display ads are invalid. Whether it's the vast majority, or closer to 36%, 14%, or even just 1.5%, we're still talking about a massive phenomena. 1% of all ad traffic on the entire web is a lot. And even if we don't have the exact numbers, the cost of all this fakery is still clear. At the 2017 Association of National Advertisers Conference in Orlando, Florida, Christine Lemkow, chief marketing officer for J.P. Morgan Chase, claimed that advertisers lost $7.2 billion to fraud in 2016. But even that was nothing, because in 2017, she said, the number would more than double to $16.4 billion. Today's internet is positively flooded with fraud, and it's not exactly a secret. As Lemkow told her audience, quote, there are 5,000 ad tech companies out there claiming that they can help solve the problem, end quote. But solve, they did not. The next year, the number more than doubled again. Advertisers lost $35 billion to fraud, according to Juniper Research. 
Juniper only tracked a 21% rise in fraud in 2019, costing advertisers $42 billion, but it's safe to say that the numbers rise significantly every year. And who knows how much data we're missing, how much fraud is happening that we just haven't discovered yet. So there's a direct parallel in cybersecurity, right? You may have heard of zero days, right? Zero days are those malware threats where we didn't know about it before, right? It's probably been running for three years, five years, for a very long period of time. We simply didn't know it was there because we didn't know what to look for. With dozens of billions of dollars squandered to cyber criminals every year and 5,000 companies offering a solution, why isn't anything actually getting solved? Because there already is a very simple solution, an easy step companies can take to circumvent fraudsters entirely. They're just not doing it, because perhaps they don't actually want to. That's next time on Malicious Life. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. It seems that our previous episode about the economics of cybersecurity really resonated with a lot of our listeners, which makes me very happy, obviously. Elvis Fernandez from Sao Paulo, first Brazilian listener that I'm aware of, so respect, he tweeted, quote, Wow, this podcast episode about the economics of cybercrime is really eye-opening for tech people. A shout-out to Ran Levy and Malicious Life from Brazil for the excellent content you publish regularly. Obrigado. I'm curious how you'd pronounce obrigado on the podcast. End quote. So, Elvis, how's my Portuguese? And, by the way, I think Brazilian Portuguese is one of the most beautiful languages on Earth. I don't know a word of Portuguese, obviously, but the way the words just flow out of your mouth when you're speaking is absolutely delightful. Kevin Kelly, a long-time listener of our show, he tweeted, quote, Yet another great episode. The statistics are just worrying and makes me think that with the advancement of technologies, the gap between threat or cybercrime and its mitigation keeps widening, end quote. Thanks, Kevin, and let's hope we're heading in the right direction. Also, a shout-out to The Magician from Orlando, Florida, who labeled our episodes a must-listen. Thank you very much. And shout-outs also go to Greg Newmark from Chicago, Mike Odor, former lead cybersecurity engineer at Twitter, and network analyst and drone operator Charles Doherty. Thank you very much. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. This episode was written by Nate Nelson and edited by me. Sarit Kutzman does our social media. Our website is malicious.life, and you can find us on Twitter at, at maliciouslife or me at, at ranlevy. That's R-A-N-L-E-V-I. Thanks to CyberReason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye. Oh